I just wanted to pick up um, quickly on those last couple of contributions that came as we worshipped um, this afternoon. And I, I just feel like God's been speaking to us already this afternoon and that he'll continue to do so as we read this passage and unpack it together. Uh, but maybe there are some people particularly who God just wants to speak to you this afternoon. I don't know if you noticed those contributions as we worship towards the end. You know, Jenny saying, whatever you're facing, this is what's true. God is faithful, he's just, he's good. And she reeled off those things. You think, yeah, there's never any need to question it. And then Dan prayed out about actually the, the welcome back that God extends to those who maybe have been prodigals and far off from him and Abby then kind of prayed off the back of that, oh Lord, we, you know, we thank you that you're loving towards us and that you're, you're for us and you're wanting to meet with us and actually whatever we've done, <laughs> we can't cut ourselves off from you. And then Emma Christie had come to me before the service with that verse and actually as she got through it, that whole thing in Second Samuel 1414 of actually God devises ways that the banished person or the person who's been cast out would not be cast out anymore, would not remain banished, but could be brought home. And just for some of us today, that sense of maybe you feel to a certain extent that you've been banished from God. There's, there's some sense of shame or something which you feel has cut you off from him. And I, I just think those contributions that came have queued up what we're going to read together in Hebrews 9 so beautifully as we read that actually he has opened a way for our shame to be dealt with, for our consciences to be cleansed, for us to be brought back to him. And so I want you to be all ears as we read this together this afternoon as we unpack. So as I said, we're going to read the whole chapter. It's fairly lengthy. Please do read along. It's going to be up on the screen or as I said, if you've got your Bibles, please open those. Hebrews 9, we'll read and then we'll begin to unpack it together. We read this. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that had budded and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot 
perfect the conscience of the worshipper, but deal only with food and drink and various washing regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that, we, that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with human hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at, the de only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for that final refrain. Lord, that you will appear a second time to save those who are eagerly waiting for you. Lord, I pray as we read your word this afternoon, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Would you give us hearts that are receptive? I pray that 
Actually, what you would speak to us today would take root and bear fruit in our lives for your glory, but I pray that you would stir in us a hunger for you. Lord, would you help us to be those more and more who are eagerly awaiting your return. Lord, would you speak to us now? Would you meet with us now? For your glory, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, Hebrews 9 is a big chapter, hey? <laughs> in fact, as I was preparing this week, I, it struck me that we could easily do a whole series in just this chapter. <laughs> you know, there's so much there in verses 1 to 10. We see the old covenant and the tabernacle and all the sacrifices and rituals didn't grant us full access or free access into the presence of God, but instead they point us forward to a better sacrifice and a better priest that would truly bring us into God's presence and deal with our shame. That is Jesus Christ and his sacrifice at the cross. We see in verse 11 to 14, this is just a quick overview, that Jesus' sacrifice at the cross, his blood shed on our behalf, cleanses us in a way which no other sacrifice or no other works or endeavor ever could and as a result makes it possible for us to enter into the presence of God clean. Verse 15 to 22, we read about Jesus as the mediator of the new covenant who secures for those who trust in him an eternal inheritance, one which cannot be removed. In 23 to 38, we read then about Jesus' heavenly once and for all sacrifice that finally and fully deals with the problem of sin and brings those who hope in him to glory and to relationship with God forever, meaning they have nothing to fear in death. There is so much. <laughs> that we could dig into in these incredibly rich verses, and we simply don't have time. And so as I've looked at this passage and prayed this week, it struck me that actually there's, there's lots in there that serves to reinforce and build on what we've been covering in the last few weeks and the last few chapters of Hebrews. And actually there's lots in there that's going to be picked up again in the chapters to come. But there was one theme covered particularly in these verses that, that doesn't get as much uh, kind of profile in the rest of the letter to the Hebrews and consequently won't get as much profile in the rest of this series. And that is the question of what can be done about shame. What can be done about a guilty conscience? How can conscience be cleansed? And so that's what we're going to look at today. And that's what we're going to give our time to. You see, after setting the scene, describing the tabernacle and something of the priestly duties, making sacrifices on behalf of the people, the writer to the Hebrews says this. I don't know if you noticed it in verse 9. According to this arrangement, that arrangement is the tabernacle and the sacrificial system and all of the rituals that the priests would go through in order to 
make these sacrifices on behalf of the people to bring them to God. It says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. This passage is crystal clear. The sacrifices under the old covenant did not do the whole job. They dealt with ceremonial cleanliness, matters of food and drink and washing. In other words, they dealt primarily with the externals of a person, but they did not and could not perfect or cleanse the conscience from guilt and shame. And that is a problem. It's a big problem. And I want to suggest it's a problem that many face today too. See, when our God-given conscience is violated, we experience guilt. Rightly so. We are objectively guilty and we feel subjective guilt too, or shame when wrong is done to us or when we do wrong, we experience shame. When we feel the weight of knowing that we have done wrong or even the desire to do wrong, we carry guilt and shame. It's something we all experience, isn't it? Like I'm, I'm guessing it's not just me. In fact, I just know for fact it's not just me. It's something we all experience, but the big question then is what can be done about that? Can anything be done? Well, I think that most of us try a whole load of things to do something about those feelings of guilt and shame. I think the world has a lot of supposed solutions. The first one that we see, I think, is that we try to make up for it or put things right. We try to do good things in the hope that we can outweigh the balance and assuage our consciences when we feel guilt over something we know that we have done wrong. And under the weight of that guilt, we think, well, if, if I could just, like maybe this thing will make me feel better. Maybe this thing will assuage my conscience, will settle my conscience and, and make me feel like, no, 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 it's okay. It will assure me I am a good person. Like those feelings of guilt, I can push them away. It will assure me I am. I know this is a kind of cynical view, but I think it's actually why um, when we get round to things like uh, children in need and the, the videos that are put together and the way they are structured, I think generally play on a guilt we feel about what's going on in the world and our part in that. And I think a lot of people, although I'm sure lots do do it from a good place, I think a lot of people, if they're really honest, end up giving out of a, a, a desire to somehow kind of 
deal with their feeling of guilt, to deal with their conscience. If I can do something, if I could pay something, if I could give something, then it will solve that problem. Whatever guilt or shame we are feeling for things we have done or desired to do, I think one of the most common solutions is that we try to find some way of paying for it. Now, essentially, that's the same as trying to fulfill the requirements of the law in order to earn God's approval. It's saying, I, I, I know I'm objectively guilty before God, so I'm, I'm going to make these sacrifices, I'm going to do these things. And I think some people still live their Christian life in that way. A failure to understand the grace of God that we're going to come to in a moment. We think, oh, like I, oh, I've done it again. I've, I've, I need to be better. I need to do more. Like I need to try harder. I've got to, I, oh, if I just read my Bible more, maybe if I could get to that early morning prayer meeting. Like, oh, then, then. <laughs> it doesn't work. Now, there is obviously merit in seeking reconciliation in our relationships with others where damage has been caused. It's a good thing to do. There is obviously merit in apologizing for wrong done and seeking to do the right thing. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. But as a lasting solution to guilt and shame before a holy God, it does not work. It cannot work. In fact, it's utterly exhausting and it offers no security because we will always live with the question of, how can I know if I've done enough? If I am trying to deal with my conscience and the awareness of things that I have done wrong before a holy God, how will I know if I'm good enough? If it's down to me to try and put this right, to try and deal with my conscience, there is no security. There's just exhaustion, frustration, because you will never know. The, the truth is you will never have done enough. You'll exhaust yourself trying. Solution one, we try and make up for it. It doesn't work. Solution two, that I think people look to and try, is that we, we bury or try to ignore our shame and guilt, and we try to distract ourselves from it. And I think that's a really common solution. In fact, I think as you look around and even consider your own life, we know that to be true, right? Like if we feel that weight of guilt and shame, like one of the easiest solutions is to push it down, pretend it's not there, and fill our lives with noise and distraction so that we don't think about it. We fill every waking moment with noise and activity and work and TV and social media scrolling and interactions with other people so that there is so much noise, there's never a quiet moment to be confronted with those feelings. Surround ourselves with people who entertain us and make us feel good. Listen to music, anything, anything to keep our minds occupied. 
from having to confront those feelings. I think of the, the other way that this works in many people's lives, tragically, is they turn to alcohol, drugs, anything that they can do to somehow numb that feeling or give them a high that again distracts them from that feeling. But the effect of all of these things, media, relationships, substance abuse, the effect of all of those things in reality is short-lived. Meaning we need to keep going back for more and more. We can't stop or slow down because stopping or slowing down means confronting those feelings and confronting that sense of guilt and shame. When the show ends, when the high is gone, we're on our own and we're still left with that issue. So that one doesn't work either. There's a third option that I think is becoming ever more popular, particularly in the 21st century Western society. This is less of a thing in other parts of the world, but I think particularly in the 21st century Western world, I think this solution is becoming actually the primary one for many people. And that is to seek to justify ourselves or excuse our behavior or desire and even celebrate those things. We just flip it on its head. And instead of seeing guilt and shame as a signal that something is wrong that needs to be put right, we take any feeling of guilt and shame and say, it's wrong to feel that. Instead of actually dealing with it or establishing why we feel that way and if there may be some legitimacy to those feelings, instead we flip it and say, you do you. Expressive individualism. There is no shame. Whatever you desire, you do. There is no moral absolute. If you want to do it, you do it. You shouldn't feel shame over that. It's the way you are. Enjoy it. If it makes you happy, then what's it got to do with anyone else? And why should you feel ashamed? Enjoy it. Celebrate it. It's probably not my natural go-to, but as a pop culture reference that I think just helpfully summarizes the way the world increasingly deals with this issue, Elsa in Disney's Frozen pictures this perfectly in that song, Let It Go. You read the lyrics to that song. She's talking about her past, conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. Like, that's how I thought it was supposed to be about who I am. But now they know, and I'm free. And she declares in the chorus at this crescendo moment, of like, oh, the pinnacle of this worldview. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Expressive individualism, whatever you feel in here is right for you. 
Celebrate it. No right, no wrong, no rules. I'm free. This way of dealing with shame actually assumes that the absolute authority is in your inner feelings, in what it means to be an individual. And increasingly, society asserts that you need to match your behavior, you need to match your externals to your inner feelings and desires to be authentically you. And in turn, everyone around you to be authentic, has to celebrate you for aligning your life with your desires. Follow your heart. If your heart desires it, then don't be ashamed of it. Be proud and pursue it. On the surface, that's a very convenient answer to the question of shame, isn't it? And it's actually one we shouldn't be surprised about. You know, in Philippians 3, verse 18 through 19... The Apostle Paul actually writes that that we're going to see this. He says that the enemies of the cross of Christ glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Glory in their shame. You see that approach to shame, to totally flip it on its head and say this feeling that is a legitimate feeling of being in violation of God's law, I'm going to glory in it and celebrate it as a positive thing. We shouldn't be surprised, but we should see how futile and foolish it is because it actually doesn't work. It doesn't work any better than the other two solutions that society has to offer. Firstly, it doesn't work because we all draw the line somewhere, meaning that even the most permissive person believes that there is something that is morally reprehensible and is shameful. There is a desire, there is a behavior that is shameful that someone should feel guilt for pursuing or acting on. So it doesn't work (laughs) because we all draw a line somewhere. And secondly, we also all know universally as humans that there is right and wrong. As those created in God's image, we inherently know that there is right and wrong, that there are moral absolutes. In the eyes of God, therefore, there is an appropriate sense of guilt and shame that isn't just a societal construct but comes from violating God's holy law. Ultimately, God sets the standard and before him, every last one of us is objectively guilty. That's why we have a problem. Before God, in our sin, we all rightly bear a kind of shame. There is an appropriate sense in which we feel the impact of our sin, in which we feel the impact of our rebellion against God and our sinful desires. There is an appropriate sense of that, that as those created to bear God's image, created to glorify Him. Any denial of that will inevitably lead to a sense of shame to a certain extent. 
We see it straight away in Genesis chapter 3 after Adam and Eve rebel against God. If you read the account in Genesis, actually we don't have time now, but go read it. Genesis chapter 3. Before they rebel against God, before the fall, we read that Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed. They feel no shame about their nakedness. They feel total freedom in their relationship with one another and with the world around them and with God as they walk with him and talk with him in the cool of the garden. And yet immediately, after rebelling against God, being deceived by Satan, they become aware of their nakedness and they feel shame for the first time. Shame enters the world at the fall in Genesis 3 and they seek to cover themselves by creating garments from leaves and they hide from God. And this shame and sense of guilt is actually entirely appropriate. But what it means for them is that they hide now from one another and they hide from God their relationship with him and their relationship with one another and their relationship with the world around them is spoiled by that sense of shame. So you be you and you do you doesn't work because deep down we all carry a legitimate sense of shame that we need cleansing from in order to be in right relationship with God. And outside of Christ Jesus, there is no lasting solution to guilt and shame. So actually, there are, there are other approaches. I think the three that we've just looked at are probably the most common ways in which people try and deal with this problem apart from Christ. There are others, I'm sure. But outside of Christ, there is no lasting solution. But Christ's sacrifice deals with our shame in a way nothing else can. And that's where we're going to get to now in the passage where the writer to the Hebrews goes next, is that there is a cleansing for your conscience that can be found in Jesus. Nothing and no one else can do it. But we read from verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The writer to the Hebrews in answer to the question of shame, argues, in theological terms, he argues from the lesser to the greater. And he does that on several fronts. And so we're, we're just going to look. He says, where the high priest went just once a year into the most holy place, Christ went once for all time. Where the high priest went with the blood of animals, Christ went with his own blood. 
the very Son of God shed his own blood, took it as an offering to make atonement for our sins. His own blood spilt at Calvary, making full and final payment for the sin of all who hope in him. If there was a sense in which the sacrifices of blood and goats and bulls and ashes of heifers could make a person externally clean, we read that's what he says, doesn't he? He says, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, that doesn't mean, so it's interesting, if you've read lots of the New Testament and you've read lots of uh, Paul's letters to the churches, you will associate the word flesh with sinful nature. And that's a, a, the, the way in which Paul uses that term consistently in his writing. That's not what the writer to the Hebrews is saying. Okay, so he's not saying that these things served for the sanctification of the sinful nature or making people right. Flesh here, he's literally talking about your body, your externals, the purification of the external you, not your soul, not your conscience. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, This once and for all sacrifice of Christ cleans us not just externally, but internally and from the inside out. The sacrifices made before needed to be offered over and over every year. We read that in these verses. A continual reminder of our sin, actually. Yeah? Like if you have to keep going back and make sacrifices for your sins... What does that continue to do? It continues to remind you of your sin and therefore of your guilt and shame. Yet his sacrifice was made once and for all your sins to be remembered no more. The cleansing that comes from his blood is complete, purifying our conscience. No more questioning Have I done enough? Instead, knowing it is finished. Having taken the penalty for your sin on himself at the cross, if you're a Christian, if your hope is in Jesus, then he declares that you are guiltless. And he promises that his grace is enough for you in your weakness. You can read about that in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 to 10. As the mediator of a new and better covenant sealed in his blood, he brings you into a relationship with the Father. And as we read in chapter 9, that you are a co-heir with him of an eternal inheritance. You're going to be with the Father forever as you trust him as your righteousness, his life given to you as though it were your own. It's the wonderful exchange that Christ offers us at Calvary. His perfect, sinless record offered 
in exchange for all that gives us a right sense of guilt and shame. See, this is, this is the most amazing thing. This is the solution to guilt and shame. Every last person in this room and every last person in this world carries an appropriate sense of guilt and shame because we have violated God's holy law. Objectively and subjectively, we are guilty. But what Jesus offers at Calvary is an exchange of his perfect, sinless record. Which by implication means what? No guilt and no shame. Exchanged for our mess, for our rebellion, for our sinfulness, for our shame. He says, I take all of that on myself at Calvary as though it were my own. And I give you my righteousness as though it were your own. That when the heavenly Father looks on you, he sees you clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness. This is the answer to guilt and shame. And when we understand that, when we appreciate that, when we grasp hold of that great and glorious truth, and when we allow it to penetrate our hearts and do us good, the power of shame is broken in our lives. I'm no longer defined by my sin. Praise God. And if you're in Christ, neither are you. You stand before God the Father, cleansed, holy, righteous, dearly loved, free from shame. Just as it was for Adam and Eve before the fall. They were with the Father. They walked with the Lord in the cool of the garden. They didn't feel the need to hide. No shame. If you're in Christ, you've been restored to that sense of total cleansing. It's amazing, isn't it? Jesus is his gift for you. And so every time shame rears its head, we have an answer. Jesus' blood cries out. He's at the right hand of the Father, crying out, interceding for you. Not guilty, forgiven, clean, holy. In Romans 8 verse 1, we find a great and glorious declaration that speaks comfort to any Christian who is struggling with ongoing feelings of shame and guilt. We read, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Every time you are tempted to believe the lie of the enemy that in your shame you are unworthy of acceptance, Jesus would say over you, there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. So stop running. Stop hiding. Stop trying to bury or ignore your shame. Stop trying to fill your life with noise to drown out that feeling. 
Stop believing that you have to somehow make up for it and pay the price. And please, please, don't fall for the lie that all you have to do is follow your heart and glory in your shame. It's a quirky lyric to a song that says, I glory in my sins forgiven. Don't glory in your shame. Glory in Christ's perfect sacrifice on your behalf. His blood spilt for you. That means your sins are forgiven. Your conscience cleansed. Come to Jesus and find true and lasting cleansing. I want to pray for us now and then we're going to come and share communion together. James is going to lead us in that. And I want to encourage you to come to the table and respond to this. And say, Lord, I'm taking this to remind myself again, to speak to my heart again. I don't want to ignore my guilt or shame. I don't want to pretend that I haven't rebelled against you. I don't want to pretend that everything in my life is perfect. I don't want to celebrate those things that grieve your heart. Lord, I want to face the reality of them and say, I glory in my sins forgiven (laughs) because of what Christ Jesus accomplished at Calvary on my behalf. That perfect once and for all sacrifice that he made on my behalf. His blood poured out and taken to the Father as that sin offering that I might be cleansed, not just externally, not just for the ceremonial cleanliness, but cleansed from the inside out. Conscience purified from dead works. Oh Jesus, I thank you so much for all that you've done for us. Jesus, I thank you that you willingly poured out your blood at Calvary for my cleansing, for my forgiveness. Jesus, I thank you so much. Lord, I want to pray for each and every person here. Lord, for anyone who has come into today feeling a sense of I'm cut off. My shame, my guilt means I can't draw near. I can't come close. Lord, I pray that your blood would speak that better word today. Lord, that we would hope in you again. That we would trust in you again. That we would see again the hope of Calvary, your perfection for our stench, for our mess, for our filth, your guiltless, spotless 
righteousness for our guilt and shame. Exchanged. That we might stand now forgiven, holy, objectively and subjectively free from guilt and shame. Holy Spirit, would you settle that in our hearts now? Would you take that truth and press it deep down into our hearts that it would bear fruit this week? Lord, for our good and for your glory, we ask it in your name. Amen.